This past week, this website came out with an article that listed the 10 most happiest jobs. And I thought I'd share that list of jobs with you. That way, if you happen to have one of these jobs, you can know how happy you're supposed to be, okay? And I'll go from uh, ascending order. We'll start with number 10. But the 10th most happiest job, apparently, are operating engineers. And this is what it says. Playing with giant toys like bulldozers, bulldozers, front-end loaders, backhoes, scrapers, motor graders, shovels, derricks, large pumps, and air compressors can be fun. And all God's men said, amen. Yeah. The ninth most, most happiest job, apparently, is our financial services sales agents. Maybe. Number eight, psychologists. And their rationale is psychologists may or may not be able to solve other people's problems, but it seems that they have managed to solve their own. Maybe. Seventh most happiest uh, job people are artists. Number six, teachers. Number five, special education teachers. Number four, authors. Number three, physical therapists. Number two, fighter fighters. Firefighters, excuse me. And do you guess, just guess what the most happiest job apparently is? <laughs> Clergy. And y'all thought it was me, but it's my job. It makes me happy. Now, I suppose for our purposes today, we could include in that category of clergy the title apostle, and in that inclusion include the apostle Paul. As you read through the New Testament letters, these, particularly these letters that we know Paul wrote and some of the ones that we kind of think he wrote, sometimes Paul can come across as a sort of um, a mean old grump. And then sometimes we come across letters like Philippians. Now, over the next several weeks, we are going to base our conversation over the book of Philippians, so much so that I, I want to encourage you to maybe, when you go home today or sometime this week, read Philippians all the way through in one or two cities. Very short book, not very difficult at all to read, and I think it would benefit you greatly to, to uh, have the, that whole book on your mind as we talk together. And as you read through the book, you're going to notice a very apparent mutual affection between this church and Paul. Paul loves this church, and this church loves Paul. Now, this church is important to Paul. This is one that he has started on one of his missionary journeys, and so there's this direct connection that he has with them and them with he. They find out that he's in jail once, and part of what they do is pray for his release. Pray for each other. You can maybe hear them saying, Lord, hear our prayers. And even more than that, they sent one of their own, somebody from their church to Paul with supplies and gifts to, to help him endure his time in jail. There's this, this, this mutual affection that they both hear, that they have. And as you continue reading, you notice and you pick up on this, this sort of joy and happiness that Paul has. And now he has some things that are important to him, some things that he needs to clear the air about, and he needs to make known some things he's concerned about. But overall, it's sort of a joyful kind of tone, especially when you compare it to another letter, maybe like Galatians, where he's, well, I won't get into that, but it's not as happy as the book of Philippians. 
And as you read it, and as you think about this happiness, if he didn't mention over and over about him being in jail, you might forget that he is writing this letter while in prison. Now, many of us today, we, we sort of mock uh, prisons that have TVs and recreation centers and, and so forth, things like that. And I'm not quite convinced that Paul knew that kind of prison. The prison that Paul knew wasn't very nice at all. The prisons that he knew uh, weren't very accommodating at all. But it's in those prisons that he writes this letter, this almost happy letter. And if I think about that, how happy he is, even as he's writing from jail, you have to realize that there is something about his work that makes him happy. That's something that this list caught on to. Now, first off, I just need to say that, well, I've had many conversations with people just about work related to church and otherwise, and so many of us here and out there consider work to be, well, a four-letter word, right? Of course it is, but you know what I'm saying. It's like work. Oh, man, I can't wait to have a day off. I can't wait to take a vacation. My work is just driving me nuts. The people at work, the bosses at work, and work is just sort of this evil thing. And I think many of us have this image of paradise as a place free of work. Hmm? Maybe sitting on the hammock out by the beach, maybe getting raised, and maybe somebody bringing you a pretty little fruit drink or something, right? Or a straw, a coconut with a straw in it. It's like, this is paradise, right? Now, that's our image of paradise. Biblically speaking, we tend to think of paradise as being the Garden of Eden. Fair? And that garden, we take that story all the way back to the book of Genesis. And if you look at that image of paradise, Adam and Eve, they aren't out on the hammock enjoying the day doing nothing. And we tend to think that, well, after Adam and Eve did the fruit thing, God punished them with work. But if you go back and look at the story, that's not how it went. Even before the serpent and before the fruit, Adam had work to do in paradise. And he doesn't say, oh, this work is all my boss. I just can't. How do I get rid of my boss? There's nothing like that. It's just that's what we do. It's part of who we are. So let's clear the air on that. Work in and of itself isn't a bad thing. We might even say it's kind of biblical. Hmm? Y'all with me? We're thinking. Okay. <laughs> okay. So Adam had work to do, and so did Paul, and so do we. Now, the work that you and I are a part of, very rarely, let's be honest, we don't get put in jail for our work, right? But Paul did. So we can't say that we're the same as Paul in that regard. But like Paul, in our work, in our lives, we face struggles. We face frustration. We face uh, times when we get denied, times that we get thrown back. We face those kinds of things like Paul did in his work as well. And so I think on behalf of all of us, I'm trying to ask Paul, what makes you so happy while you're in jail for the work that you do? And since I got to ask that question first, I think I found two answers, two reasons what makes Paul so happy with his work, and two things I think might help us as well. And the first is because I think Paul considers his work to be related to Christ. 
Now, that should sound like an obvious thing, right? It's part of who Paul is. He's going out and he's starting churches. Of course, his work is directly related to Christ. But even just a little bit deeper than that, as you read through the book of Philippians, what you realize is Christ is very important. Christ is all in the book of Philippians. In chapter 2, we have the famous Christ hymn, uh, the first part of chapter 2. Even beginning with the very first verse of the very first chapter and finishing where we left off at, at verse 30, Christ, or the title Christ, is mentioned some 18 times. Almost every single sentence has the name or the title Christ in it. Christ in Philippians is very important. Are you all with me? And I think what we see is that Paul's work was related to Christ. Paul saw Christ in the work that he did. Now, you may not be clergy. And let me tell you, that's okay. Being clergy does not make one better than a lay person. It just means we have a particular job. So you may not be clergy, but friends, let me tell you, in your work, you can find Christ. You can see examples of who Christ is. There's a great commercial that I saw this week from the Salvation Army. The title of the commercial is Amazing Grace, and they take the first verse of Amazing Grace, a verse that so many of us have memorized by heart. And I want to read to you the way that they transformed it. It says, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a crackhead, a drug addict, an alcoholic, a meth freak, indeed, a wretch like me. I once was homeless, broken, sad, just lost. But now, I am sober, I'm happy, I am found. I once was blind, but now I see. If you're asking me, that work is pretty easy to see Christ in. It's pretty easy to see in the life of someone who's been transformed God's hand at work. And now, admittedly so, it may be a little more difficult for us to see Christ in other kinds of work that we do. We're not all clergy. We don't all work for the Salvation Army. But friends, let me repeat it again. In the work that we do, we can find Christ there. Now, and I understand it might be kind of shaky. We, t- we tend to make fun of athletes, or at least call them out, or maybe we even judge them a little quickly. You know, somebody's, somebody is going to make a touchdown today, right? Somebody surrounded by, you know, 100,000 people in the stands and people watching on TV, somebody is going to make a touchdown. They're probably wearing a green uniform, by the way. But anyway. <laughs> but somebody's going to make a touchdown today. And you know the first thing he's probably going to do? He's going to do the whole pointing to the sky, and he's going to look up, and he's going to do all this. And we're going to say, oh, my goodness, right? And he sort of does his thank you, Jesus kind of move. Now, admittedly, if you were to do that at your office, people might look at you funny, too. You know, you make the big sale, and you just drop the phone and point to the sky. People might wonder what's wrong with you. But, but, maybe it is up to us to be the ones 
looking for Christ where we are. Looking for the things that we can be thankful for. Looking for how God might show up there. Even at work. You see, we have this belief that God is everywhere. We say that, right? If God is everywhere, that means there's not some kind of force field around your job place. If God is everywhere, God is even there in your office building or in your truck or wherever you go to work in. God is there. Maybe we're the ones that need to be willing and able and learn how to find God. Are you all with me? Paul's work was directly related to Christ. And I think that's part of what made him so happy with it. For Christians, Christ is supposed to be pretty important to us. That's why we're called Christians, Christians, right? It's Christ who shows us God's salvation. It's Christ who invites us to follow him. It's Christ that has shown us how to live the life that he has given to us. And Paul has this great statement. He says, living is Christ. Living is Christ. And at first it kind of sounds confusing. Well, what does that mean? Living is, is Christ. Well, to help you out, just think about who and what Christ is and was. We start, well, Christ the Savior. Don't go putting that on your resume, okay? You're not the Savior of the world. That's sort of his, his thing. But we also know that there's other things about Christ that we know. Christ was compassionate. Christ was merciful. Christ offered forgiveness. Christ healed people. Christ was a friend of sinners and tax collectors. Christ was obedient. Christ was a servant. Christ had love for all people. And so that may be part of what we can say is that if living is Christ, then our living should be all of those things as well. But unfortunately, we've made living to be other things, haven't we? For many people, living is about keeping up with the Joneses. Or living is about keeping up with ourselves. Living is about us. But Paul says, living is Christ. Now, Paul also says that dying is gain. And understand this dilemma that Paul has with himself, apparently. This isn't his first runaround in prisons. He's been doing this preaching stuff for a while now, and people have responded, the religious people have responded pretty negatively to him, and they put him in jail. And Paul's dilemma is, well, maybe it's just time to call it quits. You know what? You got me chained to that. Fine. Torture me. Take my life. I don't really care, because living is Christ, and dying is gain. I'm not worried about dying I know what's happened. There's far greater things, far worse things that can happen to you than dying. And so Paul's faced with this dilemma apparently himself. Do I just go ahead and die and be with God? Or do I make sure I am here with all of you? And part of the reason I think he decides for the latter, may not have been totally up to him, but he decides that he needs to be here to continue his work. And part of that is found in that statement that he says. He talks about having fruitful labor. Fruitful labor. Now you have to remember, Paul was a tent maker. 
We know that about him. He had other skills besides teaching and preaching. He had skills that could help him, sustain him, so we can have food and shelter and those kinds of things. But, but he found that in Christ there was his work. And that in his work he found great meaning. As he thought about that Philippian church, I'm sure, he thought about the people that he met. He probably started out as some small group. And he's continually heard and heard about how this group has grown, not just the numbers, but how they've grown in spirit of unity, the things that they've learned about God and themselves. And he thought, that's my fruitful labor. And that work, I think, brought meaning to Paul's life. And I think, friends, that's the second thing that we've got to realize about Paul. It seems that so many of us have lost meaning in the things that we do and in the people that we are. How many times have I heard a young person say something like, man, I wish it was the weekend already. And it's Monday morning. I guarantee you today's Sunday, all you guys that are Facebook people, get on tomorrow morning. See how many people, your friends who go to work and say, man, I can't wait till the weekend. And that just, that troubles me because we got into the habit of just wishing away our lives. And partly I think that's because, well, between Monday morning and the weekend, all there are are just days. Nothing important, just time in our life that we have to fill. And friends, that is not life, and that is not Christ. We need to be able to find meaning in who we are and in what we do. Now, this list of happiest jobs that I shared with you, uh, it ended uh, the article by talking about the, the differences between the ten most happiest jobs and the ten most unhappiest jobs. And the unhappiest jobs might be another sermon. But really the difference between those two lists was something that we're talking about right now. That the people who had these jobs apparently found meaning and felt worthwhile in the work that they did. Not only as workers, but also as people, human beings. And these jobs aren't the highest paying jobs. Clergy, hello. <laughs> but they make, they make people feel meaningful and worthwhile. And I think that's what so many of us are missing in our lives. We need to find meaning. As Christians, if we're going to be talking about keys to life, I think we need to start there. Understand that living is Christ, and in Christ we have meaning, who we are and what we do. Now, you don't know this woman. She lives in North Carolina, but she, uh, this past month, in August, turned 106 years old. Now, understand about this woman. This is the same woman who, when she was 104 years old, got on the phone and called her pastor and said, Pastor, what else can I be doing for the church? Now, here's the truth. If any of you happen to be 104 and you call me on the phone and ask, what can I do? I'm probably going to ask you, well, what haven't you done in 104 years of life? But out of that phone call, she became her church's birthday ambassador. That became her new job. And last month, when she celebrated her 106th birthday, she did something I think is very meaningful. 
See, correct me if I'm wrong, but when people reach a certain age, typically, you know, kind of 95 plus, every birthday they have is kind of like, whoa, okay. You know, it makes people pay attention, right? 96, 97, not, whoa, 90, 100, 101, 106? Are you kidding me? And part of what we do is we want to ask them, what? is your secret. What did you do? What did you not do? How did you get to live so long? And this, this woman, who's a part of the United Methodist Church, by the way, which I think is very uh, a blessing for me anyway, what she showed us is that living is Christ because for her birthday, with all this attention around her, she gathered on a Sunday morning with her church family like she's done for many, many years, I imagine. And she reaffirmed her baptismal vow. Vows that she probably made many, 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 many moons ago. But that was a way that she showed us, I think, that living is Christ. She found meaning in something particular that day. She could have gone on, just let that day pass. She could have let the events of that day just be what they were, had a big cake with a lot of candles. But she wanted to find meaning in that moment. And friends, I think that's a great lesson for all of us. As we go about our days, what meaning are we making to ourselves, to our families, to our churches, and to our community? I, you know, being a clergy, I'll, I'll disagree with it. One of the happiest jobs I can ever think of. But some of the most unhappiest moments of that job come when people don't have meaning, don't want to find meaning. They wrestle, well, you know, we, we can't do that. We shouldn't do that. We should stay away from this. We should be this, well, because either we're too small, either we don't have enough money, either we don't know the right kind of people. We do that as churches, and we do that as people as well. Friends, stop worrying about what you know you can't do and find meaning in the things that you are doing and watch what God does with that. Watch what God is able to do with people who understand that living is Christ and that there is meaning in our lives. I want to repeat that and I want to stress this to you, that your life, what you do, who you are, means something. Who you are and what you do means something. Would you pray with me? Oh God, our brother Paul has told us that living is Christ. So, God, first we need to ask your forgiveness when we have made living other things. Forgive us, God, and show us what it means to live a life that reflects your Son. Help us, God, to live in his compassion and his forgiveness. Help us, God, to take on his mercy. Help us, God, to have his joy as well. Teach us, God, to live in Christ and help us, God, to find meaning in who we are and what we do. And together as your children, we pray in your name. Amen.